You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. I'm Lisa Birnbach, and this is Five Things That Make Life Better. Our guest this week, Annabelle Gerwich, joins the very small, you could say elite, two-timers club on the pod. This is her second visit. And in the year or so since she was last here, get this, she has written a new book, launched a successful podcast, and been diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. That's a lot. One year. In her new book of essays, You're Leaving When? Adventures in Downward Mobility, Annabelle talks straight about a tightened belt and novel ways she's discovered to make money. Her honesty about her life and the life of her non-binary child glistens. She's working relentlessly. Her drive, energy, stamina are admirable, and her humor and intelligence are a gift to us all. Oh, wait, did March end yet? Is it just the longest slog, March? I noticed it last year, I think a lot of us did, as we locked down only in mid-month, remember, in 2020? But now 2021 confirms March is just too damn long. Now, here's the thing. Why don't they make February a little longer? February is like a mutant pinky that is just like a little bit of a disfigurement. Let February go to 30 or 31 days, move the leap day, and then March could be at least a day or two shorter. It's just not right. We're sick of March. Let me know what you think and let me know who you think I should go to to petition my plan. Now, if you are somebody who celebrates Passover, very few people that I know had a proper Seder this year. I certainly didn't. I saw that Alan's Y. Bell did because he posted pictures of his family together on Facebook, but ours was fragmented. I mean, it just, as a friend of mine said, we had enough. It was not on the docket. My two nearest and dearest were recovering from their second vaccines. Both were had last Saturday. My mother wasn't really feeling up to it. My house was an infirmary. We were all hither and yon. We did hook up to a family Zoom, and my mother was fully dressed for it this year, so that's a plus. But my family was speckled on my computer screen like so many little postage stamps. It was unforgettably forgettable. In puppy news, Sheila is now a total untrustworthy sneak. She's poking into shelves for yummy treats like face masks, face mask filters, very delicious, earplugs, bottles of nail polish, and always her favorite, Kleenex. She is under house arrest now. And wait, where, wait, where, where is she? Oh God, gnawing on something. I mind, but I don't mind because spring is also poking out and that is a reason to smile. I've already spent as much time walking in the last 10 days as I probably did the last 10 months. Just moving does feel good. So here are the five things that make my life better. Number one, perspective. Everything is not exactly going to hell anymore. I mean, there's dire dire warnings. The head of the CDC this week said she was scared. She actually said that. I don't think she cried, but for me, it was a cry of notice. We must notice just because a lot of us have been vaccinated doesn't mean that COVID is not a terrible, terrible risk, a terrible plague. 
The variants are emerging. You must wear your mask wherever you go. I am proud to say that in my neighborhood of New York, basically everyone is in a mask, but you know, it's a deadly plague and it's still out there. Number two, the streaming series Russian Doll. I'm a late adapter to this Netflix series that I'd heard about. It is a show set in New York City starring Natasha Leone. If you like her, she's very quirky, you'll like it. We binged it after the first Seder and then the next day. And it is at first extremely annoying to me. I think partially because I couldn't figure out what was happening. So it's smarter than I am, and that's irritating. But after I sort of got into the groove of it, and there's a musical hook that got me very much into the groove, I sort of became intrigued by it in a very big way. And now I cannot wait for the second season. Anyway, it's called Russian Doll. Number three, Mark Bittman's recipe for creamy vinaigrette. You know, if only I had started cooking when I was raising those exhibits at home. It's not as hard as I thought. And uh, I apologize. This is a blanket apology to my exhibits for all those chicken nuggets. Anyway, this creamy vinaigrette I found online at the New York Times food website. It upgraded my asparagus the other night. It upgraded my whole repertoire. It made me less dependent on Paul Newman's own dressing, which has been a staple of my life since college. I love you, Paul Newman. I certainly loved you, Paul Newman, but I think I'm finally moving on. Number four, Maya Rudolph. She hosted SNL last weekend, and I don't know, there's something about her amongst those comedians that feels like I'm watching a friend. I think it's because she has such a deep sentimental streak, as well as just going very deep into comedy. Anyway, I just enjoy her. She brings light wherever she goes. She balances a family of four children. Plus, I think she flies into New York every other week to be on TV. So human Jenga family and Maya Rudolph. And number five, Stissel is back. Stissel is back. Stissel is back. Oh my God. I'm meeting it out in tiny little teaspoons. I've only watched the first episode because it is so good. Stissel on Netflix. There are now three seasons. Coming up, another human Jenga doer, maker, thinker, Annabelle Gerwich. Don't go away. Hi, it's Lisa Birnbach, and Annabelle Gerwich is here. Well, she's in California, but she's here-ish. A year ago, she was on the podcast talking about her book, I See You Made an Effort, which is very funny and a great title for life under COVID. Her new book is called You're Leaving When? Adventures in Downward Mobility. Downward mobility. Get it? It's what's happening to all of us. It's a really great read. Annabelle is now a friend of mine. Welcome back to the podcast, Annabelle. I'm so glad to talk to you. 
Powell, I'm so glad to talk to you too. I feel like when we met, we were in each other's orbit, lots of mutual friends, and you lived up to every expectation and more, you know? Oh, (laughs) well, back to you too, really. But I have to say, you've had quite a year or two. First, you started a podcast called Tiny Victories. Yes, I started that during COVID. I mean, just let me say, when you say I had a year or two, who hasn't? No, I mean, I I know, (laughs) but you've accomplished so much in the year. You wrote a book, you started a podcast, and you got diagnosed with a terrible illness. Those are three big, big things. Yeah, it's true. You know, you're referring, of course, to I was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer during COVID. But again, I just have to feel like, you know, nothing that I'm going through is any different than all the kinds of things. People are just going through so many things. And in some way, that's why I write. It's why I'm putting out a podcast. It's actually why I still continue to write comedy. I feel like, Mm -hmm. you know, comedy is just so important at this moment. It's a balm. It's a balm for the soul. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's my savior, really, because I'm a Jewish person, but I'm an atheist, but I believe in comedy. Yes, I can see it. I can see the effect of comedy. I am certain of it. Do you see sometimes when you meditate or when you do what atheists do when they say they, when other people pray, do you see like a little Don Rickles Buddha figure? You know, or, you know uh, who I Phyllis see? Diller. Yes. Uh, who I do see you Joan see? Rivers. Yeah. I, I have to say, you know, as uh, perhaps this is one of these things with aging, you know, but I had this very early imprint of Joan Rivers. My parents took me to see Joan Rivers, which is kind of funny to me that like we went to see Joan Rivers and I was like 10, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that is that is precocious. You know, like I don't think I understand. I don't remember a single joke. I don't remember anything about the act. And I do have a lot of like, I, I always remember language, even from an early age. But what I remember was, okay, we were, I think at like the Eden Rock Hotel in Miami Beach where we lived, mm-hmm. right? Was that she was this woman who was dressed in a really fabulous dress, first of all, very important memory. She came out and she sat on a chair on stage and she just talked. And I, and made, I mean, I, she made and people were and laughing. People right. were laughing, but it was that she was so self-contained. And mm-hmm. she just held her own. And I just, it sounds really silly, but I just don't think I had seen a woman do that, you know, hold her own in that. I mean, you know, my reference point for, you know, figures of authority were basically the, the rabbi and cantor at Temple Beth Shalom, you know. Where, well, who doesn't I, feel that way about that? You know, but to, to see this woman and she just held the audience and I've just come to really appreciate her and her work and her trailblazing that she did. She, and she I, had an incredible work ethic. There was that wonderful documentary made about her yes. where you could see that it may have seemed and she wanted to seem like she just tossed off a joke, but it was lying in a file cabinet that yeah. she was very, very meticulous. Right. And, right. And, and she was feminine. You know, that's the other thing. She looked like a lady like your mother. 
Yeah, she did. And the thing about her, too, was she had a lot of tragedy. She lived through tragedy Mm -hmm. and she managed to go on. And I think that's probably a uniting factor with anyone who writes comedy as well. Yes. You know, it's turning these situations, you know, tragedy plus time equals comedy. (laughs) Right. And it's it's actually, I just read an article today about the happiness index in the world and strangely enough, even though there's been so much suffering, the news is that people have adapted. I mean, we are a very resilient and adaptive species, surprisingly so. People's happiness, I'm always a little wary of the word, you know, happiness quotient, Mm -hmm. but what they specifically drill down to in this study is that people are adapting to find these small happinesses, the kind of thing that I focus on in Tiny Victories podcast, right? but also that people have developed a certain kind of detachment. And the detachment allows them to think about you know, the future and the story they're living through as a story, which lessens Hmm. suffering. It's a very interesting idea that detachment can do that for you. And actually, it's the same thing that I feel about writing and also writing comedy. So in You're Leaving When, I'm telling stories about adapting to a new normal. You know, I like to be a chronicler of different Mm -hmm. chapters of life. And in this particular chapter, post-divorce. So it's no longer mm-hmm. a wife. My parents had both died. And so I was no longer a daughter and no longer a caregiver, which I had been for my parents. My kid was off to college. So I was no longer a daily motherhood. So who am I? You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> so much mm-hmm. of my identity. And I would say joy was wrapped up in these memories and sort of daily living experience. Well, that's a thing. Like you are a writer and a performer, but your essential you was taking care of your family. And when your house was empty, you actually looked for someone else to live with. You wanted for income. I mean, it wasn't just a sloppy, I need a roommate. You wanted the company and you wanted the income and you knew other people who were renting out rooms as a very viable. Yes. You know, that that's the thing, Lisa. So, you know, one of these things is about this idea of creating a story and a detachment. So what I would do and and this is sort of how I I know I can write about something is if I can change something to have a certain detachment from it. So I can say, this is a story I'm living through. And then I know I can also write about it. There's some things I don't write about it if I don't feel I can get a a grasp. Uh But so the story I was living through was that (sighs) I needed to make money in order to stay in my house, right? So I was looking for adaptive strategies for making money, but also at the same time, adaptive strategies for filling my life with meaning. You know, and right. typically I do that with, you know, I volunteer at my local high school. I, you know, I'm, I, I'm part of a writer's collective. It involves social activities, but my house was actually really, you know, I could hear the sound of my footsteps too much. Like, you know, right. it was just, it's was just not yeah. filled with life. And also there was the financial needs. So I decided I would rent out rooms in my house. And this is where 
I feel like there. This is where well, I, trouble ensues, as they would say. Ensues, yeah. As they would How say in TV Guide. <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah. That's the funny thing is, I think you know. How do I get myself into these situations? I yeah. I, I, oh, Lucy, Lucy, there's a problem. <laughs> totally, totally. I feel like one of the things that I have has remained sort of a character, uh, whatever defining character of me is that. I'm very judgmental person. There's never anything I don't have an opinion about. Very often it's negative. I try to support that with facts and, and, <laughs> and even made up facts. Or I just, you know, I always try to, you know, wage resistance to popular thinking. But at the same time, I do have this funny streak of naivety. So I'm like, let's get a roommate. I'm 55. I'm going to start <laughs> roomies, you know? And, <laughs> and, and the funny thing is, is, you know, I had all kinds of amazing experiences and I've actually loved, I stopped that during COVID, but I've loved doing that. I've had students, I've had writers, I've had, well, there was one. The homeless. Of, oh, yes. So that brings us to some stories in the book. So one of them right. is actually about taking in a French tenant, which is the sort of the misguided one that did not go you well. You thought that would be a cultural exchange, really? Yes, I did. What it was, was my house turned into like a weed dispensary. And I, the smell <laughs> of cannabis clung to me. Like I'd walk down the street and people would ask me like, where they could buy weed because I smelled <laughs> like I just, I was it was coming out of my pores. Um, oh my god! So, so that was a bit of a, a misfire. But then I lost a tenant, and this is a chapter in the book that I write about. When this is where you know I always try to take on big issues, but there's also. As a social activist. As a social let's, activist. Let's say that. Yeah. Yes. But there's also, there's always comedy inherent in everything. And what happened was I lost a tenant. I heard about a program where youth who were unhoused could be placed into your home and you'd get a small stipend. And I thought it meant like foreign exchange students. I had no idea what I was yeah. getting myself into. Well, it, the language keeps changing. As you say, it's unhoused. Well, and that, there's a reason. That is a yeah. word that used to, the more common word for that is homeless. Yes. But homeless has a much more negative connotation than unhoused. It does. And I actually think this is where language gets really important, is that one thing I, I didn't understand before I became a, a stakeholder in this issue, really, was that Americans are falling in and out of homelessness because of the wage gap and housing costs. And also the gig economy itself has created this situation where people don't have resources. They don't have job references. They don't have hours they can count on. It becomes very hard to arrange well, for housing. And so I didn't understand until I read your book that some people who sign up to be food delivery people are traveling by bike well, or don't even have transportation of their own. They're trying to get enough assignments so that they can take a taxi. I mean, it's- Yes. And, and also, you know, many times when your food is being delivered, you're not getting delivery from someone's vehicle. You're getting your food delivered from their home. They are 
living in their cars. This is what's Mm. happening in our society. We don't have a safety net that can accommodate what people need in the way that the labor force is driving them into this kind of employment that doesn't let them afford housing. I mean, and you live in Los Angeles where there's no street you can go on without seeing the homeless or the unhoused. Right. And one of the things, of course, I learned, first of all, I think I'm a really progressive person. And in truth, I am, you know, a bit of a do-gooder. You know, I like to think of myself that way. But Mm -hmm. I I didn't realize I was seeing and theming. I was otherizing people in this way, making assumptions that were really wrong. So for instance, one thing I didn't know was that the majority of young people, and that's the area that I really know about now because of my experience of having this young couple live with me for a month. I didn't know that the majority of young people on the streets of my city are actually from Los Angeles. Oh, right. And that is actually true of most cities in the United States. And I think we think when we see people, I mean, even the best amongst us, my first instinct has been to say, why don't they go home? Why don't they go Mm -hmm. back home? There is Mm -hmm. no back home. They are home. A lot of factors can lead to experiencing homelessness or being unhoused. But for young people in particular, it is that they are children of what we would call the working poor, families Mm -hmm. that can't afford to support them anymore, or they are college students. One in five community college students in this country reports on experiencing housing insecurity. I mean, some young people are on the street or out of housing because they've been kicked out of their homes for sexual identification. And, you know, it's, it's really not what I thought it was. When I signed up and I agreed to do this, I was also certain while I was agreeing to do it that they were going to murder me in my sleep. And the first right, thing I right. did, the, <laughs> you know, I, but I didn't want to admit that, you know, I, I was like, oh, no, one, one part of you wants to open your house to the homeless okay. youth. The other part of you wants to hide the silver and the jewelry and the, which I did, you know, which the, you did. I, I hid my jewelry, not that it's really worth very much in my, in my grandmother's silver in my closet, my bedroom closet. I had a lock installed on the closet, by the way. Yeah. I probably, by the way, I would, I would, I would have done the same. Uh, I think we all would. And I lost the key right away, just by the way. So, you know, that's ridiculous. But so, you know, when they showed up at my house, the first thing they did was call their mothers. And I was Uh like, what? You have mothers? I mean, (laughs) I I had so otherized them. I couldn't imagine that they had any life outside of living in the car they were in. And I didn't even realize they had jobs. They were working. They loved their families. They had families that loved them. You know, it just blew my mind. Of course, at the end of the month after they lived with me, they told me, that they had also hid their valuables when they moved into my house because they didn't know what kind <laughs> of know. Man, right. person I was. <laughs> like, what kind of person does this? And, sure. you know, they had also seen a copy of the Satanic Verses in my living room and thought I might be a devil worshiper. Now that oh, uh, kind yeah. of blew my mind. And, but that also represented, you know, how they had grown up in a very limited cultural area of the country. And, you know, part of staying with me was 
getting a chance to read the books in my library that they hadn't had experience with. And they are from a very depressed part of the United States where the opioid addiction rates are really Mm -hmm. high, poverty rates are really high. And, you know, every sort of sense of my own hypocrisy really came out in that story. And and that's what I'm really interested in as a writer, Lisa. I always want to write about where my expectations meet reality, which is often Mm -hmm. the comedy, but also the things that I can't believe that I feel that I actually have to confront about myself. There's a story in the book about how I end up flying on a semi-private plane accidentally. Right. You know, because I I'd gotten this cheap ticket on kayak and I thought that it was like a medical transport and I'd be flying with like a kidney. Kidneys, <laughs> right, on your lap. Because it, yeah. it said it was an empty leg seat. And I was like, empty? This sounds vaguely medical. And I, I I just had no idea. I was headed towards this very exclusive membership only, yeah. semi-private, it's a, you know, this little tiny thing. I get there and I'm like, holy shit. And meanwhile, I have railed against flying private for years as an right. environmentally conscious person. I know how terrible it is for the environment. I get on that plane. First of all, the whole experience, the amount of velvet ropes, a lot of velvet <laughs> lives were given. Yes. For this. There was velvet roping for the bathroom, like red. Oh it was like, it was all very special. There were, it made it all into an event. It, it was an event. First, I mean, there were yeah. free snacks everywhere. You know how you go to the airport and the price gouging is like $10. Yes. No, this was free snacks. It was, I mean, it's sort of everything you would ever think about what it is to be privileged. To be rich, one percent, and and it's the thing I've railed about. So I get on the plane, and it smells like leather and (laughs) people who've paid off their college loans. I mean, the air was the scent, the scent of the scent of no problems, no problems. You know, and and I mean, even like. The down to the little details, like the, the tray table was, was this like polished wood with this, it was so beautiful. I was tempted to like pocket it and just like <laughs> take it off and stick it in my bag. It was so crazy. And, and while I was on that flight, it was an hour flight from Los Angeles to Oakland. I thought, what organ can I sell so that I can always <laughs> live this way? I was ready to give up any moral or ethical compass in one hour time. That's all it took. It takes less. T- it takes less. Was, well, well, you know, the, before you know, takeoff. Yeah. You, you know that you're in a luxurious situation when there's no line for the ladies room. That's what really oh. took my breath away in the, in the little airport hangar. Flight there was the velvet. There yeah. was velvet ropes to each stall. I'm kidding. That wasn't really true. <laughs> but what there was, was there were cut roses on the sinks. I mean, like, you know, airport bathrooms, we all know, we all know them. And there was no line for the ladies room. And then there were fresh flowers. I mean, it was like I died and went to ladies room heaven. It was, you know, it was was just too much. And, And I was just ready to sell my soul immediately. So I... That to me is what I, oh, and of course, when you read the book, you'll find out I forgot that I had only gotten a one-way ticket, the ticket back from Oakland. I was flying Spirit Airlines. You were in cargo. (laughs) It's like flying Greyhound. And just, it was 
the, it's the human comedy, in, in Annabelle. Tw- in tw- it really is. In 24 hours, I went from being coddled like a soft-boiled egg to, you know, competing like jackals over a piece <laughs> of round kill, you know, at the airport for Spirit Airlines. And it just, uh. I, I... To me, that's where I just get really excited as a writer to write the details of like what everyone was wearing uh, on each of the flights. And I love that. But I also it was it was hilarious. It was hilarious. Before we get to your five things, I do want to talk about the way you write about your child Mm -hmm. and how your child feels about being such a prominent actor in this particular book. Oh, yes. Starting from the dedication is to them. Yes. So Ezra is my child who's uh, 23 now and is, I'm going to use they, them, theirs pronouns. You know, first of all, (laughs) my child maintains that they do not read me, which is probably a good thing. Uh huh. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. But I write as though they do read me. Right. Yes. Uh, right. And also in this, their friends could read you their, also. Oh, their friends would never. Twenty-three <laughs> year olds think about it. <laughs> so, oh, I guess not. Yeah. But but uh, but you know, one day they may want to read me, and this book actually took a lot of negotiation because I wanted to do something particular, which was I wanted to write about experiences that I witness as a parent of this generation. And I think we're in this really interesting position of I cusp boomer Gen X people who are parents of Gen Z. And there's no overreaching issue that defines everyone, but there are very prominent issues for our young people. And one Mm -hmm. of them is gender identity. And during the course of time between after my child left for college and coming home, boomeranging home, like so many of our children do, you know, they had all these different issues. Ezra is four years sober. They got sober in college. They also began identifying as a non-binary person. And so in some ways I lost a son and gained um, uh, 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 a, 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 a child. A ch- well, you know, this is one thing I struggle with in the book. The is language. There's yeah, no word for it. son or daughter that's a non gendered word for your offspring that really makes sense. Adult child sounds like there's something wrong with this person. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So that's true. The only way I How can... about lamb? Yeah. Well, your, no, my... <laughs> your, your adult lamb. Yeah, that's a, that's creepy. So then, yeah. <laughs> so then I have to come up with things like uh, the uh, person who sprung from my loins whose cell phone bill I still pay. Yeah, just roll yes. off the tongue. Let's let's it face doesn't. it. it yeah, I, it's not like I guess you have to come up with an acronym like Soho or Tribeca. Ooh, that's a really something. good assignment for me to to work on. But so yeah, so I wanted to write about what it is to witness this generation. This generation also has taken a lot of. I feel like I'm sounding like an over, a lot of heat, a lot of yes. heat, man, for, yes. for, for being the way they are. And no, but you know, this thing of like the labeling of them of snowflakes. And I, I really wanted to take this on and look at the factors 
in a hilarious way uh, <laughs> that, <laughs> that uh, makes this a difficult time for them to be coming of age with all these disruptors in terms of social media, also the economy they're living through. And so right. I have I just have so much compassion for them and the particular anxiety. So I try to walk this line of not writing about Ezra's experience. Of course, I can't write from their point of view. I can only write from witnessing as a parent. And then I I draw upon some research done by a really terrific science writer named Catherine Bowers, who wrote a book called Wildhood about the similarities of coming of age in the animal kingdom and adolescence in the animal kingdom to human adolescence and how we can really learn from the animal kingdom in terms of our expectations of when youth are meeting benchmarks. So there is a, I have this like serious agenda underneath there, but then, Uh you know, under the hilarity, under under the, like, you know, find Ezra and I going to housing works vintage store. And they're so busy that we have to share a dressing, a room. dressing room. And I'm in my full body Spanx and we're trying on clothes. And I come up with the outfit that I know they're going to love. And they're like, mom, how did you do that? And I get to say to my child, I just picked out the ugliest thing in the store. And I knew, you know, it's like this horrible, yeah. like, you know, our children now are, as young people, they dress more like fungi than humans. They're like a Billie Eilish sort of mushroomy kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, baggy. Baggy, blobby. But, yeah. you know, there's also a beauty in that. And I see the world they want to live in, a non-gendered world that has less cultural expectations. And I don't fully understand it, but yet I embrace it and I believe in it. And I believe in it partially because I don't understand it, because I feel like that is our job as, I hate to say it, but like elders now. We have to know that they see a future that we can't even imagine and they're going to be living in it and they get to determine it. And so, well, yeah, but let me go back to something very elemental. As a parent, were you surprised by Ezra's announcement by his there, I don't want to call yes. it choice, um, but yes, his well, you know, decision. Well, you know, yes and no. I mean, you know, what isn't surprising? I mean, I've already been through addiction, which that was surprising to me. And yet, why should it be? Young people have so much anxiety besides any sort of genetic predisposition towards this thing. You know, to see people self-medicating is something I have compassion for. So, you know, we've been through so many things with Ezra, but like every parent, this is though, by the way, the reason why I wanted to write about it, I think that there are many subjects, including just the general theme of this book, which is to really talk about financial fragility and insecurity, Mm -hmm. which has been traditionally a taboo subject. And, you know, even writing about being the mother of a child in recovery from addiction, Uh, a friend of mine, I don't use her real name, but in the book, I write that she said to me at one point, I'm so glad I can talk to you. This is, you know, when Ezra was going through these issues and her kids were, all my other friends, their kids are A students in, you know, and I, leaks, but not you. I'm like, 
What? <laughs> what? <laughs> that, great. I can share my misery with a fellow well, misery sufferer. But yeah. then I know that no one's life is Instagrammable. Right. At least right. 24 hours a day. But I wanted to, something I always want to do is, is to write to those subjects and illuminate those subjects that are taboo and take that away. Take any shame away from that because that helps normalize feelings so we don't feel shameful. And I think Mm -hmm. even just struggling with understanding our young people, I think it's just, you know, I'm doing this as a public service. I don't mean to sound that way, but I, I am, I want to have that conversation with my readers and to put myself in the position of someone who has ambivalence. I don't have a five point agenda for, you know, converting anyone to any point of view, but I want to open up that real struggle and way that I've adapted to my life and to our lives. And with Ezra writing about things about my child, with this book, I was very careful. It might not seem that way, but there's things I don't address that you just you wouldn't know that I felt crossed a line of privacy. And these stories were, I, I did have to ask them, you know, permission to share yeah. certain details. And again, that, right. that has to do with detachment. Some of those details take place in the past. And those are stories that they've reconciled with and that I've reconciled with. And so opening them up, you know, putting them on the page was something that they did vet with me, although Mm -hmm. they still promised they're Although I'm going to just admit right now, Ezra's running my Instagram page and (laughs) (laughs) Ezra is saying to me, I'm having such a good time being you mom. And of course, this is a conversation you never expect to have with your child. Ezra texts me the other day and says, mom, after you were on real time, Bill Marshall. Yes. Yes. Ezra said, "Uh, mom, you're getting a lot of offers from men who want to date you. Uh, how should we respond? <laughs> oh, how funny. <laughs> Just... Well, start vetting them, Ezra. <laughs> Just so funny. Just to dispense with any doubt, Annabelle writes so candidly. She writes about sex. She writes about her body. She writes about Ezra. She writes about money. And, the, you know, uh, you have tackled taboos in a funny way, but you never are not you. You are never not one of the most honest writers I know. And it takes guts, girl. You know, uh, perhaps misguided. Perhaps is a is a is, is an adjective, but I well, I I don't know, Lisa. What are we doing? We're not just pushing know. the envelope on these subjects, and I mean that's where the funny lies, you know. Yes, for sure. I include in this book, as you know, a story about when my friend issued a dictum to me that I had to go to the local sex toy emporium, the pleasure chest. And, yeah, right. and revamp my collection of of uh, adult toys adult toys so that I could get ready to get back out there and you know encountering for the first time a vibrator with a smart app I mean yeah that, yeah on your phone yeah right. that just you know that 
is to, I still uh, I I did not buy that one. Just you're by old the way. school. I'm a you're old school. Old school but on vibrators. I feel like you know who in our generation doesn't see that and imagine this headline: uh, spinster sti- <laughs> stimulated to death when her vibrator was hacked. Her smart <laughs> vibrator was hacked. Her sister told her it would end up this way if she didn't find someone on J-Date. I mean, you know. This is, God uh, bless the New York Post. I think I read yeah, that headline I'm already. I'm sure it's happened already. I'm trying to, my whole goal in life right now is to stay ahead of Grey Gardens, from my life yes. to Grey Gardens, trying to put yes. space to that and to not <laughs> end up on page six. Because at this point, page six is not going to be good for me. I used to love being on page six of the New York Post. But at this age, I feel like page six is only a bad story for me. You don't want anyone you know on that page, no. I think at this point. No. Annabelle, it is better even. I mean, the book is delightful, but getting the real you on the phone is even more delightful for me. And for those who don't get that pleasure, I do think you'll love your leaving when adventures and downward mobility. And Annabelle, it's time for your five things (gasps) that make life better. I'm so excited because, you know, this is something we have in common, Lisa. My my podcast, Tiny Victories, it's about one thing every week, but you really inspired that idea of cultivating an appreciation of things that make your life better. So even just collecting my five things and thinking about it is an exercise in joy in finding some joy and really thinking about, well, what is it? Because I went and I, I, after I made my list, I went and went down the rabbit hole of each of these things because it just made me so happy. Okay, here Uh, we go. You ready? Number one. Yes, yes. Number one. The Korean American playwright, Young Jean Lee. So I recommend that everyone stop whatever you're doing right now. Look her up on the internet and you can watch a version of her show called We're Gonna Die (laughs) that was done at Lincoln Center. And the fantastic thing about this show, and she's a playwright and a performer, and there's songs and stories that she tells with her band called Future Wife. And this is all so healing and funny. The premise of this play is she writes this after her father has died of lung cancer. And Mm. I was, someone recommended that I see this after I was diagnosed. And I said, are you sure? And the thing about this play is it reminds us that all the things that happened to us happened because we're human. And my favorite song that she sings is called Horrible Things Happened. At happen and the couple of just the lyrics the refrain is i'm going to say two lines which is who do you think you are that you should be immune from tragedy what makes you so special that you should go through life unscathed and young jean lee tells us in a story that she knows who she thinks she is someone so special that nothing bad should ever happen but that Mm. can't be true because she's human and to be human means that things happen and i love this show so much i find it so life-affirming and so full of joy through this recognition of this basic part of being human which is that we go through terrible things and not because we're in any sense cursed but because they're human and 
It's so gorgeous. I, oh, I well, I'm going to watch go and it. See it. Okay. This Pronto. Is, my number two is something I'm calling Call Me By My Name. Uh-huh. And during this pandemic, I've been taking this yoga class online with my sister. We both do it. It's a live class. She does it in New York. I do it in LA. We do it. We sign on and we don't even see each other, but we know we're doing it together. But the thing about it that has happened over time is our teacher, who I've never met, by the way, she started doing something about six months ago where she says people's names during class. Uh And it was so startling at first to hear this person who I've never met just start to say things like, hi, Joe. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Annabelle. And the first time she did it, I just burst into tears. And I realized Uh that I don't think, I mean, I've been doing this, you know, safer at home alone for the most part. And there are days when no one says my name. Uh-huh. And I thought how powerful it is just to hear your name. Now, terrifyingly, Dale Carnegie once said, a person's name is to that person the sweetest, most important <laughs> sound in any sound, language. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I feel terrible saying this, but I feel like in particular at this moment, it has become a very important thing. And also, by the way, Joan Rivers, bringing it back to Joan. Bringing it back to Joan. In an episode of Louis C.K.'s show, done in, I think, 2011, she castigates Louis. It's a fiction, but it's based on reality. She's there. They're both doing a show in Vegas, and she says, well, let's go say hi to whoever's name is, like the booker and the manager of the room. And Louis says, I don't know who that is. And she said, you haven't learned the names of everyone mm. here? What, what's wrong with you? And I, I so I just been thinking a lot about recognizing, it sounds so silly, but people's names and saying no, their names. it doesn't sound silly. And- it doesn't sound silly at all, especially when you're on a movie set or you're in a new situation or a new job. Really, to know them and to look them in the eye, it's so important yes. to be looked in the eye and for someone to understand that what they're seeing is Annabelle. Right. Well, and, you know, and I just thought, and I'm just trying to do this in practice in my life is just right now also thinking about how much people are going through that if I see someone, even like in the grocery store, like the attendant, you know, and just to say, Hi, and whatever their name is. Maybe that'll be important to them. Maybe that will make their day that just that little bit of recognition. So that's number two on my list. Number three on my list is I just learned about TikTok videos that young people are making about books that make them cry. Really? Yes. This has become very popular and it's also really sells books. I think it sells a certain kind of books, but uh-huh. I just love the idea because I think TikTok is like the harbinger of doom. I mean, anything that's like, oh my God, you know, like if now it's all entertainment, it's going to be 15 seconds long. That's right. terrifying. But that's on the long side. That's on the yeah. long side. But I, yeah. I love that these young people, again, I just, there's something so fantastic about Gen Z. They keep defying 
what we think about them. So they're on TikTok, but, and particularly I follow these young women now. They make book videos about books they love and they just, it's about books that make them cry. And I have to feel like what they're really saying is, and I, I don't think this is just arguable, is that these books elicit empathy. So, you know, they've turned this thing that I hate, a TikTok video, into something that I have to love. Like, oh, you Gen <laughs> Z, you're so you clever. You, look what you've done. You've roped us in. And I love that about them. And you look at these videos and they're just awesome. So kudos to you book sobbers out there. Book sobbers, yes. number three. Uh, number four is the handshake. I am hoping mm -hmm. against hope that maybe in 10 years, <laughs> the handshake <laughs> will come back. <laughs> I, I miss it. And a lot I of people too. are not missing it and are saying it's kind of good riddance. It's unsanitary. It's unhygienic. I think Dr. Fauci is not a handshake lover to my chagrin. Yeah. And that's like the only thing I don't like about him. I know it's not hygienic. I know it's kind of ill-advised. And that's kind of what I like about it. I, I, <laughs> I, I, it defies rationality, but it's something humans do to greet each other. And, you know, originally the tradition started as a way of showing that you were unarmed. Right. And, uh, you know, we're recording this in the aftermath of two terrible shootings in America. And, Somehow or another, because of COVID and when these shootings have happened, I've thought of the handshake instead of a gun. And I, yeah. I, I know that's not an equal, that's these two things don't necessarily go together, but just thinking about the origin of the handshake and prevalence of, uh, well, I grew up violence. with a father who mm -hmm. said my handshake was very important. Right. He said that to my brothers and me. And you look someone in the eye and you say, how do you do? I notice I don't say, how do you do so much? But also I never leave my house. But, you know, that was what I did. But also misjudgmental. I was very privately, secretly judgmental about handshakes. Oh, me too. Me too. I and love a firm handshake. I, I love it. I, I mean, I was taught the same thing by my dad. And I know that sometimes it gets a bad rap of like boys are taught that, but my dad taught that to my sister and I, it was very mm -hmm. important. And I also think it's interesting. How do you do not what do you do? Yes. How do you do the, the greeting came before the, and usually it was followed by talk of, you know, what do you do? But there's something about that convention, that one gesture, I don't think it's matched when you don't press the flesh of someone else mm -hmm. defying rationality. Hygiene. Yeah. So <laughs> I will miss it. And I think it might take many years, but I imagine it's going to be like a secret handshake society thing again. Like it'll be like a taboo thing. Ooh, do you belong to the handshake? Oh, well, people, well, people are hugging again. They can shake hands and then 
Purell the hell out of themselves. I, I think it's funny. I think a hug is really different than a handshake. And in a way, a handshake is even more kind of fantastic because you would do that with someone you wouldn't hug. I don't know. There's some really very small distinction I make and I, I hope it comes back, but I imagine it will be a long time. So I just want to give it, give the handshake a shout. Then I have one last, yeah. my number five. Yes. My number five is a story that I have only recently, I would say rediscovered, but discovered. And it's a story by Primo Levi. And if you're familiar with Primo Levi, Primo Levi wrote about... Wasn't he imprisoned during World War II yes. and the Holocaust? Primo Levi was an Italian Jew who spent time in the camps and then felt called upon to write about these experiences. And his books are amazing. And I've been very familiar with his books. I started reading Primo Levi many years ago. But a story that was brought to my attention last week by Primo Levi is somehow, I think, a really good read for right now. The story is a short story that was republished by The New Yorker in 2015. And I think I'm going to butcher it because the name of it is Quais. Quaestio de Centaurus. So it's a story about a centaur. And it's what I would have quantified as magical realism, but other scholars have called it instead magical narrative or immersive fantasy. And hmm. it's a short story about a centaur. And it's sort of set in sort of a science fiction version of the earth. And the centaur is, as centaurs are, a combination of man and horse, a hybrid. And when you read the story, you understand that Primo Levi is writing about the centaur as a representative of what's been called the uncanniness of the Jewish-Italian community, who were very, by the same time, they were assimilated into Italian society, but they were also segregated. And this hybrid incongruity and complexity of their lives is something he's reflecting in this fantasy world of this centaur and this other creature. And I feel like it speaks to us beyond the Jewish experience, but it really is a story about otherness it's a story about assimilation. And I feel like in light of things that are happening all over the world, but particularly in America right now with the shootings and killings of Asian Americans, I saw a lot of resonance in this story of the centaurs walking this line between two cultures and their quest to be recognized and not otherized. And you can just Google the story in The New Yorker where it was reprinted. And I'd love to invite others to read this at this time too. I think it's truly a timeless story as you know, Primo Levi's genius is all of his writing, but a really good story for right now. Well, this is one of the great lists because these are all things that we can redo, Google, look up, think about. It's as thoughtful as you are. And I'm really happy to talk to you. I couldn't be happier. And I wish you, Annabelle, all the best. 
My guest this week has been Annabelle Gerwich, actress, activist, and New York Times bestselling author. Her book that we've been talking about is You're Leaving When? Adventures in Downward Mobility. It is published by CounterPoint. You've been listening to Five Things That Make Life Better with me, Lisa Birnbach. My guest this week, Annabelle Gerwich, is followable on Twitter at L.A. Gerwich or Facebook at Annabelle Gerwich or on her website at AnnabelleGerwich.com. I'm glad I didn't make that the name of my website, <laughs> but it was close, but I, I went with Birnbach. I don't know. Oh, I don't know. I think I'm going to just change mine to LisaBirnbach.com and just see what happens. Yeah, just just go for it. Just, just for live, fun. live on the edge. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If you enjoyed this podcast, oh, also Annabelle has a podcast called Tiny Victories, which you can find wherever you find any podcast. And if you enjoyed this, please subscribe if you're not subscribed and listen to Tiny Victories and subscribe. As you know, every positive review helps us find new listeners. My blog is at lisabernbach.com, where you will find links and photos to all the things in this program. This podcast is produced in New York City by thefieldtv.com. My engineer is Kevin Watkins. My team is Spresso Rucci, Michael Port, Boko Haft, and Sam Haft. Until next week, wear a mask and act natural. (laughs) Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers. (laughs) 